Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today's conversation is a part of the podcast exclusive content in which I continue my conversation with Professor Pinha Shir. He is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures, a contributor to many magazine articles, and the author of several core classes offered by Israel Bible Center. We are talking about food in the Bible. Last week, we touched on the general diet of the Israelites and how food helps to form a cultural identity, and therefore how Israelite ideas about food shifted in the Babylonian exile. Today, I want to get to two separate yet tangled topics, food laws around what you cannot and can eat and those with whom you're allowed to share a meal. Let's start with sharing meals and how you build relationships. And here I'm thinking even about Deuteronomy, in which there are festivals which the people of God are invited to bring food from their homes to the chosen place, and they're invited to eat at God's table. This has important implications when paired with ideas that God is supposed to be the ultimate ruler of the land, the king. And all the people without hierarchy eat together from God's table. This is explosive. It goes totally against all ancient Near Eastern habits of banqueting with kings and establishing hierarchies. But here we are talking about biblical feasts. I ask Pinhas for his reflections on food and festivals and what it does in the building of relationships between God and his people. Lean in and enjoy this tasty conversation. It's a little bit of a complicated, kind of a long, long topic, but let me let me just see if I can kind of walk through this path a little fast. It really is about economy. If you, th- you think it really become, begins with economics, uh, the agrarian society, how they live, what they do, everything they produce, moment it the economy gets fused with your worship, your religious devotion. Now you have sacrifices, offerings, first fruits, latter fruits. Uh, all these things start to flow. And this is the exchange of food. The same old idea that we talked about of having a relationship between people is framed by food. Now you have a relationship between God and his people also framed by food. Why? Because you bring food to his temple and some of that food gets burned up and destroyed and waved before the Lord, like all different ways of offering essentially. But the entire sacrificial system is built on food and food products. Now, some of them are animal products, some of them are non-animal products. But in a sense, as you're right, this is eating with God. Much of worship, and I know that for modern people, that's not how they think about it. Because for modern people, worship is something else. But 
if we go back to the Bible and say the only kind of worship that really exists is a temple worship, and the temple worship is not about singing songs or chanting, you know, certain passages from the Bible or anything like that, it's actually about bringing sacrifices. It's about taking go- goats and slitting throats and letting the blood run out and skinning them and offering them on the altar and, and burning them and cooking them and then sitting down and eating some of it. And some of it goes to the priest, some of it goes to you. And somehow all of that's supposed to be worship worshipful which for most modern people, of course, is absolutely ridiculous because people do not think of that being worshipful at all. But it is all about food. And so when so much of your life takes on this meaning of food production, and we're blessed because you know we just go to the store and buy whatever we need to. Unless you're a farmer, you probably don't know much about what it actually takes to produce this little thing that you eat. I mean, most people just don't grow their own food, okay? This is the society we live in. But back in the days when most people did produce their own foods because there was no big mega stores for them to go shop at, uh, everyone farmed. Much of their daily life was wrapped around food production or, or processing of those products to make food for future. And so you can see how food was so much more meaningful to people. Today, it's just like it's just a mundane thing. Oh, it's just there. But when you are yourself involved in growing it and taking care of it and tending it, then bringing that first fruit offering is a big deal. Now that becomes very meaningful. It's much more personal that way. So um, lots of sacrifices, of course, in the temple. You know, all of them are food related and um not all of them necessarily animal related because there's a lot of grain that's been offered and oil has been offered and there's uh there's libations you know there's wine being poured out uh leavened offerings unleavened offerings uh, salted unsalted so many different varieties but all of it is like is like a table it's like a big feast with god essentially if you want to think about it that way and then people are participating in that as well and so who participates how much they participate it's meant to be almost like a family affair this is another thing that i think uh, a lot of people do not realize is how much people ate with outsiders most of the meals that you consumed included really your family and nobody else if you invited guests that was like a special uh thing and so most of the time and if you invited guests most of those people were probably somehow related connected to you anyway so you had a relationship uh with them and so so eating within your clan eating in the temple of your god with your people would make sense and you wouldn't even think about outsiders and how would they relate to any of that so you could see how uh the whole idea of eating and then the unique rules that god gives through moses you can't eat this and you can't eat that really in a sense starts to form israelite identity when it comes to food very unique um recipes unique food as a quick aside we have a few clay tablets that preserve some babylonian stew recipes some scholars at yale university have been trying to cook these 4000 year old recipes and you can explore their findings at babylonia-collection.yale.edu And archaeologists have found differently shaped pots and ovens, all of which help us understand how people prepared food in ancient times. However, Pinhas and I were talking about Israelite eating. Let's talk about kosher or kashrut instructions. What exactly are these laws? Israelites do not eat certain species at all. We get into the 
kashrut laws. People call them kashrut laws. They're not really kashrut laws. They're just laws of clean and unclean. Kashrut is a modern terminology that we use. It hasn't been around. It's it's a post-biblical terminology that gets thrown around. But if people study the laws of kashrut in Judaism, they're very, very different from the laws of clean and unclean in the Bible. You know, the laws of clean and unclean are actually quite simple. These species you eat, these species you do not eat. Uh, out of these species that you do eat, you have to kill them correctly, and the blood has to be drained. And as long as you follow those rules, then that meat is acceptable. Unless, of course, that animal happens to be a firstborn, because then it's really not yours anyway. It belongs to God. You're not supposed to eat it. You're supposed to give it give it to the temple uh, and things like that. Uh, and then, of course, if you do slaughter that animal, then guess what? The hind quarter, you can't eat it. Why? Because we have this tradition about Jacob, you know, wrestling with this mysterious man, and and since then he's limping because he got hurt, and so we don't eat the hind quarter, and it, it all of a sudden, okay, that goes away. So now you're really going to eat that. And then God says, you know, you're not supposed to eat any of the entrails, any of the fat. That's all mine. It goes through the altar. You can eat the rest of the stuff, but this, you know, eat lean meat. Don't don't eat cholesterol bad for you. <laughs> don't do that. So, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, all these rules start coming into place. And, and that creates a very unique um, sort of, say, food culture for Israelites, which I'm sure a lot of outsiders do not understand because the world is, well, the world is always struggling to eat. Uh, today, I mean, especially in, you know, in many of the Western societies, we don't struggle for these things like that. But for the majority of the world history, people feared just starving to death, going hungry. And so that plays into the Bible a lot, uh, the idea of the abundance. And then now you're being asked not to eat what everybody else eats. Now you have to limit yourself uh, and control your urges, your desires of just filling your belly and being satisfied, you know, where now you you can't do that. So, yes, that plays a lot into uh, Israelite identity and the rules of clean and unclean with just segregation of certain species. And there are so many sort of say rules that come into play later in the culture that create the idea that we call the kashrut, you know, how the animal is being slaughtered, what kind of knife is being used, uh, you know, mixing of milk and meat and all of these matters that most of them are obviously post-biblical matters. Uh, and, and that's what we mean when we say kashrut. So uh, I always try to be careful about not inserting that that terminology into my discussions of biblical uh, context, because that's really a little bit different. Uh, it's like saying that, you know, Moses, you know, got an SMS from Aaron, you know, and, and everybody will start laughing because they all know that didn't really happen. So it's anachronistics. Therefore, kashrut is the same thing. It's anachronistic. <laughs> You know, that the, that is interesting. What do you think the purpose is of having a designation between clean and unclean food? I think it's a mystery that that really puzzled a lot of people. I think so. The first place where it pops up is uh, Noah. So Noah is not an even eating animals, but he already knows which ones of them are apparently clean or unclean. So those designations apparently exist before time before they're being eaten. So it may have nothing to do with consumption they may just this is just the classification of animals let's put it that way because when noah goes and takes the animals into the ark he's being given d direct instructions of how many and which kind to take 
and he doesn't question it. He just does it exactly. He, I, I mean, the way the Torah tells the story, he knows what to do, and he has no problem with that. So, uh, again, and he's not even eating them yet. So, uh, it's it, a lot of times people think clean and clean. It has to do with like good or bad. It really has nothing to do with that because we're qualifying clean and unclean as good and bad. But this is our projection of something a quality of some kind that I don't think is accurate. I mean, the way, the best way I can understand clean and unclean is basically for food, not for food. That's it. I mean, it's like for consumption, not for consumption. And in the case of Israelite worship, uh, for the altar, not for the altar. Now, if God doesn't eat it, you shouldn't eat it either. If you can't bring this as an offering to God, now why would you want to participate in it yourself? So the idea of, of, of really being one with your God by emulating what God eats, that's what I eat. What I eat, that's what my God eats. So you have that relationship again, um, and and really, you know, imitation. Uh, so it's that's the really the simplest way I can explain uh, cleanly unclean. Of course, people go into medical reasons, you know, and things like that. Right. And those I, are the ones I, I always heard from the time I was I, a kid. <laughs> and I always think that, that okay, that's true, fine, that's true. Maybe that I mean. It, God is wise, and maybe he'll tell us things that aren't, you know, avoid things that are bad for you. Uh, you know, I, I can take that. But I don't think that was the thinking uh, behind behind these laws. I think they were designed to differentiate people really more than anything. I don't think God says, you know, okay, goats are good and kittens are bad. You know, nobody would ever think about eating cats today in Western society, you know, but, but, but they're definitely unclean animals, right? Even though they constantly clean themselves, if you ever watch the cat, that's all they do is clean themselves, clean themselves. You know, so um, that it's it's you know it's not the lifestyle. People look at the animals and say, "Okay, well, pig rolls around in the mud. Look how dirty it is. So therefore, it is unclean." It really doesn't have anything to do with that. Again, I don't think that's the idea. I think it's it's much more of a symbolic uh, idea. This is this is what God says is acceptable to Him. And this is what God says, not accepted with him. And and Torah gives us very clear, you know, sort of say rules for deciphering which animal is which. Does it have split hoof? Does it have multiple stomachs? Does it chew the cud? You know, the whole idea of rumination and things like that. So we're given some really good tools to to use to to figure these things out. And some of the animals named them Torah. I don't know what they are half the time. So don't have an option of even eating those. <laughs> It is interesting, the uh, clean and unclean or for the altar, not for the altar. It it lends itself really nicely to a comment that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 7. And it starts with the Pharisees seeing Jesus and disciples and they're eating and they don't seem to have clean hands. And so the Pharisees are questioning and mm -hmm. Jesus goes into this really interesting conversation that seems odd enough that the disciples circle back and say, wait, mm. what exactly do you mean? And a part of what Jesus ends up saying is nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. And mm. that has historically, or at least in some Christian circles, has been taken as Jesus is annulling the, the laws of clean and unclean. There's that parenthetical comment that thus he said cleansing all foods. That's what people really go for. And that 
that settles the argument if our, if the argument was theirs for 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 people. So yeah, so you're right uh, that that context get brought in. So we have a number of things going on there. First of all, we have the idea of defilement, and again, most people don't really think about defilement. Again, if if you if you come from a Jewish culture, then yes, Torah talks about defilement. And it actually tells you exactly the things that defile you. And guess what? It is not the things that you know. It, it truly things. <laughs> that come out of you, that defile you. If you want to be literal about it, uh, the things that defile you is all sort of body excretions, essentially. And I think that's what Jesus actually talks about. Those things do defile you. According to the Torah, uh, things like feces will defile you, right? So yeah, uh, the Pharisees were very particular about cleansing themselves, about washing of hands and things like that. So they believe that defilement can be passed on. There's degrees of defilement. So if you touch something which was defiled, then you yourself would become defiled. So it's like, it's almost like germs. They just, they travel, right? Defilement travels. And that's a very much a, of a thinking. So Pharisees are the ones who actually developed this uh, to a degree to uh, which today many medical professionals would understand because we know about these little tiny things like microbes and germs and stuff like that. And they, of course, ancient people had no idea about any of these things, but yet Pharisees had these rules about washing hands before you eat and believing that defilement, touching something unclean would somehow now render this food that you're eating unclean. So if you look at that passage in, in Mark or in Matthew, there's a parallel passage I actually like the Matthew version better because it's a little bit fuller. I think it's Matthew 15 um, is parallel to to Mark 7. So uh, it's it's a parallel. You know, it's a gospel parallel. And so um, in that story, there's just a little bit more explanation of what, what the argument really was about and things like that. So in that story, Jesus actually tells them, you know, that what defiles you is not eating things with unwashed hands, but what defiles you is something else. And so he actually makes it, uh, a little bit more about defilement and a little bit less about what it is they're eating. So if you read um, the passages in the gospel clearly, you will realize that they're not eating unclean food. It actually says they're eating bread. It actually tells you right there in plain text, so what's unclean about bread? Well, there's nothing unclean about bread unless your hands were defiled or unless the bread itself somehow was touched by something that it wasn't supposed to be touched. And so basically you are trying to perform this purity ritual by washing your hands by saying, okay, Lord, uh, whatever defilement might exist here, I'm canceling it out. Because the intention of my heart is to stay pure and clean and not to take into myself any sort of impurity. And so I want to keep myself pure and clean. So I'm going to say this blessing. I'm going to wash my hands and just trust that everything is okay. You know, in a sense, you know, how is washing your hands going to really help if the food that you're eating is contaminated? Not really. But then going back to the idea of sacrifices and all these other things, how is, you know, slitting a goat's throat and pouring out the blood is going to make, get my sins forgiven? That also doesn't really answer the question. Why? Because we're really talking about our relationship with Almighty, and we don't really understand the mechanics of why these things are supposed to be done. We just know that they're supposed to be done. So Pharisees believe that washing hands, purity, purification actually helps to remedy whatever impurity that might exist. So kind of uh, that was that was the means of making things right. And apparently disciples have neglected those uh 
means and for which they get criticized. And that becomes an issue of uh, argument um, and criticism and which to which Jesus answers with words that are, I think are often misinterpreted, misunderstood. But studying what defilement is in the Torah, that's what he calls them back to, saying, look, eating with unclean hands is not going to defile you. Touching things that came out of your body will defile you. So if you did that, by all means, wash your hands, you know, before you eat. Uh, and so it's a very technical answer from the Torah. Uh, and he calls them back. To, I mean, curiously, I mean, this is this is funny, just a little side to say that, you know, a lot of times people say, okay, Jesus canceled the laws of Torah by pointing to the Torah. <laughs> the case that he quotes, he quotes the Torah. And, and what does he cancel? The Torah. Like, how can you cancel Torah with Torah? <laughs> right. That makes no sense. Like, either he holds it to a high authority by quoting the Torah to them, you know, or or he doesn't. You know, if he doesn't think that these laws are important, then why does he quote from the Torah, which uh, articulate those laws? No, I don't think that has anything to do with uh, clean and unclean uh, or clean eating or unclean eating, because clearly they were eating bread. It has to do with the internal arguments about defilement, what makes a person unclean, what makes a person unclean. It's just this let's say, a Jewish, an inner Jewish uh, debate about the different degrees of impurity and how that may happen upon you. And different Jews believe differently uh, in that particular area. Some were more scrupulous and some were less. Some were more uh, conservative in, in how they treated themselves and others were more free. And and so uh, the tradition of that that we're seeing in Mark seven and you know is still very much alive, so people still practice it. So it's a daily daily living practice. So I love that point of Jesus is not using Torah to cancel Torah <laughs> or scripture to cancel scripture because he's quoting from Isaiah twenty nine, I think, and it has yeah. nothing to do with food, mm. and it has everything to do with how a person behaves and love towards God and. A lot yeah. more of the clean and unclean and defilement. What defiles you before God? Think about it. You know, like to me, it's his his point is about devotion because then then later on he brings on this thing. Well, you know, you do this with traditions, and then he's and then he levels a criticism back by saying, "Look, you neglect your parents. You actually don't follow the one of the big ten commandments. You know, one of the big ten commandments is honor your father and your mother. Well, you don't." Why? Because you set aside your wealth and you say, that's Korban, that's for the temple. Uh, you know, uh, I can't help you because this money is not mine, essentially. And so Jesus says, that's really disrespectful to your parents who actually need your help right now. But you're saying, I can't use these funds to help you because they belong to God. So he actually criticizes, but what does he criticize? But he talks about the Torah. He, he does have problem with some traditions, so to say, being pushed too far. And perhaps that's what comes out in that passage. This week, we moved from festivals to clean and unclean food to clean and unclean behavior. Next week, we will conclude this series with moving into the Greco-Roman world and some of the seemingly odd things both Paul and Peter do around food. If you like conversations like this, then come join us at Israel Bible Center. You will have access to many amazing courses and roundtable talks that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. 
Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>